Welcome to Stanford Innovation Lab. I'm Tina Seelig, Professor of the Practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford University. This podcast is designed to give you a taste of the topics we explore in our classes on innovation and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Michael Terrell, founder and managing partner at Terrell Leadership Group, which offers executive coaching to companies. He's also the co-author of The Inside Out Effect, which focuses on effective leadership. Michael studied management science and engineering at Stanford, where he was also a Mayfield Fellow. In this episode of the Stanford Innovation Lab, Michael discusses the challenges and opportunities for effective leadership in startup teams. He shares his thoughts after working with countless groups, his process for diagnosing team dynamics, and examples of how he works through problems with teams. I walked away with many meaningful insights and tips, and expect you will too. So for those people who haven't known you as long as I have, can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what you've done since you graduated from Stanford? Sure. I, uh, after graduating, I got involved in a research and writing project, actually, somewhat unexpectedly. I had just finished up the Mayfield program, and I got invited to work on a book on leadership development, team development, with a, another professor there in the School of Engineering, Benham Tabrizi. Uh, we wrote a book. It's called The Inside Out Effect. Published it. Uh, I started a leadership and executive coaching practice shortly thereafter, working with many Mayfield fellows in the early days especially, and uh, along the way I've taken up a few staff and coaching positions at the GSB at Stanford. I am so fortunate that I've been the beneficiary of some of your workshops and have been incredibly impressed. I'm curious, when you walk into a room with a new team, what's the first thing you're looking for? That's a really great question. It's often somewhat informed by uh, why I've been brought there. So if I'm working with a startup team, a founder, there's there's some reason that I'm there. Let's say it's uh, their decision-making process. And uh, one of the things that I will clue into really early on, even as I walk into a room, is speaking roles or dialogue roles. Um, who's speaking? Who's not? Who's got sort of engaged posture and is greeting me versus is you know finishing out emails or is on Slack on their phone uh, or is just sitting there in silence. And I try not to judge those things and anchor to a first seven second first impression, which by the way, the research supports most first impressions get made in those first few seconds. Um, but just to notice them, to notice them, sort of uh, take tabs, take stock of them and usually see if those things stay consistent and play out over the course of the, the workshop or coaching session that I'm there for or not. And then I can highlight those things. Have you found a lot of consistency between teams in terms of what are the, what are the most typical challenges that people face? There are certainly themes, um, particularly you know, here in the Valley and, and in startups, uh, themes around uh, trying to reconcile the desire to go really fast with uh, making quality decisions that stick you know, sometimes running into, are we updating our KPIs or our goals every month? Uh, and if so, what does that do to our ability to stably run and organize teams and uh, motivate our people? Um, so that's, that's an example of something that comes up a lot. Um, in early stage teams, uh, another theme is uh, depending on the background of founders or uh, the early folks is, you know, are we friends are we family in some cases? Is this my spouse? Are these past coworkers? And what sort of um, both benefit and baggage come with those pre-existing relationships? Um, long-standing uh, positive dynamics, things we're able to kind of communicate without even 
saying to one another versus uh, longstanding fights that get played out in, in different ways and, and shapes. Uh, those are other sorts of things. I could go through a list, but those are some that come to mind. It's interesting because when companies get started, there's such a focus on the idea, on the product, on the company. But there's a lot of evidence that the team is actually more important than even the idea, right? The, the idea is going to morph and change over time, but the team, the founding team, is hopefully relatively stable, and getting that working is such so important. I'm going to play you a little clip from Warren Packard, and uh, he's talking about the fact that teams are more important than ideas. And I'm curious if you agree with his perspective. The tension is between what is more important when starting a venture. Is it the team or is it the idea? And along with the idea, you can say, is it the market? Is it the opportunity? Is it the business? Is it the technology? But team and everything else. And in all my experience at DFJ for 13 years, team, team, team. And my experience with Thu's right now, having now run this business for, it depends on how you count, it's all uncertain, but a year plus, it's all about team. And no matter where we go with this business or how successful or unsuccessful we are with this business, this journey is going to be fantastically rewarding because of the people that um, I'm surrounded by and the people who have joined this venture. And like I said, this is the layup because I, I think a lot of you have had this ingrained in you. As time goes on, the venture does become more about the market, more about the product, more about the defensibility, and all those things that come to bear and you have to really focus on. And you're going to hire more and more people, and you'll lose touch with you know, employee number 81. I can't remember who that is. But right now, it's all about team, and it really makes this experience fantastic. But there is, there's always some tension between what should lead the charge. And I would say if you're thinking about starting a company, think about your team. Think about your team first especially if you don't have that opportunity in front of you. Or if you have that opportunity in front of you, think about who would be the best folks to join you in that venture. So Michael, what do you think about that? Uh, well, being a person who does all my work in the team and, and developmental space, I, I'm certainly a fan of the, the core message. And I think, you know, there is compelling evidence that suggests, I think Noam Wasserman, this may have been shared in some of these earlier conversations, I know you've worked with him as he's visited Stanford, uh, has done research on founders' dilemmas and uh, studying, you know, thousands of startups finds that of the early stage startups that fail, 65% of them fail because of team-related people-related issues, not product market fit, not funding, not some of the things we typically think are so essential as, as uh, companies get off the ground. So I, I think there's some research that would substantiate uh, what he's saying in that clip there. Um, and another point he, he highlights there is uh, just how much that early stage team is going to feed you and fulfill you uh, as you get going early on, especially, he seems to be alluding to those first 5, 10, 15 employees and just how meaningful that can be. And uh, particularly if you're somebody who's relationally driven, and we all are to a certain extent, some of us more than others, uh, that can be a huge source of your ROI, particularly in the early days where it's you know bagel bites and late nights and blood, sweat, and tears. It's what's the quality of the person 
next to me and my sense of closeness and commitment to them. What sort of tools do you use when you're helping to assess how a team's working and then also helping them improve their relationships? So when I come in to work with a team, uh, my work usually falls into one of two categories. Uh, The first is some sort of process conversation or contracting conversation where we sit down as a group, let's say it's a team of four or five people, and we just have an open conversation about what is our process right now. It might be around how we make decisions, how we organize our workflow, how we prioritize our tasks. What is it? Is it explicit? Uh, What's working here? What's not? What's working for you? What's what's not working for you? And we have a chance. It's almost, you know, in its silliest forms, feels like sort of a group therapy session. We're not asking those deep-seated questions, but we're sort of saying, what's going on here and how we do ourselves? And can we, when I call it a contracting conversation, can we make a new explicit contract with one another about how we might want to tweak some things going forward? So that's one way. It's a process contracting conversation. Uh, Another way to sort of get there, and it's sort of the second category of interventions I might do with a team um, when I'm brought in to work with them, is to do some sort of simulation. So I was talking earlier a little bit about when I walk in and I start noticing sort of what speaking roles might people be in? What sort of uh, nonverbals are people showing up with? Um, What I'll sometimes do is come in and say, let's say there's a decision that the team needs to make or there's um, a longstanding strategy conversation that's been being put off. I'll have them have that conversation with one another and I'll film it. So I'll record a 20, 30 minute conversation. They'll actually be making some decision or coming to some consensus together. And then afterwards, we'll talk a little bit about some of the theory behind uh, team dynamics, things like uh, group biases, things like speaking roles. And then I'll play the film back project it up on the wall and have them all take notes on it. Um, they'll take those notes because though you know they've been being filmed and this is just one conversation, I believe and my experience has shown that that conversation is usually a pretty good proxy for how they tend to show up with one another. And so the learning that they take as they jot down notes there and then get to get, get into that conversation about, wow, what did I observe? I didn't even realize that I spoke for half of our allotted time. Sometimes the leader would be like, wow, I took up a lot of space there and I didn't really get as much input as I, as I thought. Or um, somebody will notice, wow, a lot of my comments are pretty divergent. Or I'm somebody who always resists the flow of the group. I'm always pushing back. I'm always devil's advocating. And I noticed the group kind of stopped listening to me at some point. Um, and they're able to sort of either self-reflect and make those observations or point them out in one another and then get to that new contract. Uh, with one another as things they want to tweak going forward or things they want to continue that are that are working well. Very, very cool. Do you find that there are some very common blind spots that people have, or is it very, very individual? There's certainly a, a large swath. I think one of the things I find, particularly in early stage um, founders, is I think it's one I was alluding to a little bit, and and you know I, I've got counterexamples already coming to mind, but sometimes when you have such an affinity and ownership of that first product, and you have such a vision for what you want it to be, um, while you might say you know what I do want people's input, I want to be have a collaborative team, um, to be sort of unaware of just how much space you take up or just how directive uh, your leadership may be. Uh, that's something that I think sometimes surprises people. I think 
oftentimes when people hear them, if we go to the film example, when they hear themselves on video or they see themselves, it's like if you've ever listened to yourself recorded on a, you know, a phone oh, message. Oh, we know this. Or when we listen back to this podcast later, like, oh my gosh, that's how I sound. Uh, there's sort of this, this moment where it's like, wow, I... And, you know, I end all my sentences in an uptick or I'm sort of shouting all the time or I sort of look aloof as I present things or um, I gesture wildly when I cut people off. So there's uh, it's, there's a large variety within that, but there's a self-awareness that people come into by just getting to watch themselves do their thing, which they rarely get to do because, as you know, we don't do our team meetings in front of mirrors. Yeah, it's it's super interesting to listen to yourself or to watch a watch a video. Uh, there are always a bunch of surprises. I know that it always makes me cringe, but I learn something every single time. Now, let's get back to the idea of founders getting together around a passion for an idea. Sometimes, though, their styles, I mean, they might have been great when they were buddies, but all of a sudden now they're working together and their styles, their approach, their philosophy is really different. I'm going to play a clip from Martin Mikos about what happens when founders have a falling out. And I'd love for you to give your reflections on, on what he's saying. We did have a complete fallout with the CTO and founder of MySQL in later years. This could have derailed the whole company. I was running the business and I was realizing or concluding or thinking or erroneously thinking, I'll leave that to you to assess, that the founder wasn't being productive anymore, didn't produce what he was supposed to do, didn't lead the way he was supposed to do, didn't let others lead the way they were supposed to lead. So I removed him from all important roles. We left all kinds of nice job titles, so it looked good, but we essentially stripped him of all responsibility because it didn't work. And he responded by starting to sabotage my work as a CEO. And managing this conflict between a hired gun, a CEO who came on board, and a founder <coughs> is a huge stress for anybody. And I can tell you it happens in nearly every startup. It's amazing how or not amazing, it's sad how common it is that you get conflicts between founders themselves or between founders and the new guys. So this is Martin Mikos, who was a CEO of MySQL, and he was brought in as a CEO and clearly having attention with the original founders. Do you walk into these situations? What do you do? These are the fun ones. <laughs> Uh, usually having some conversation or, or walking into this situation, uh, would it actually be a series of walking in to separate conversations? Usually it's going to be a conversation with, in this case, Martin first, um, potentially a conversation with his counterpart or, or the original founder and doing a little bit of triage before, if ever you get into some sort of mediated, uh, conversation of some kind. Uh, these conversations are really hard. You know, the startups are passion projects and uh, beautiful, great, uh, monumental things can come from that. Also, highly destructive and irreparable dynamics can emerge because of that. And so one of the things I always try to be really realistic with my clients on, if I'm brought in in this sort of high-tension high uh, co-founder situation or uh, a new professional executive brought in and is having tensions with the founder, is just... Uh, leveling with them that the best outcome might not be some harmonious, beautiful, smooth everything out 
outcome. It might actually mean a drastic role shift. It might mean somebody needing to leave, even leave the company. And trying to really get real and level with people about that is potentially an outcome of really stepping into these conversations and to solving this problem. And if they're unwilling to consider that as a potential outcome, then I typically uh, will set that engagement aside and, and go elsewhere because uh, that just needs to be on the table when it comes to these deep-seated uh, differences. That's really interesting because putting on the table the beginning, the fact that outcomes might not be so beautiful for everybody yeah. and that some people might be winners and some might be losers, right. but it might actually be a big win for the company, even as an individual might not get exactly what they want. Absolutely. I think people need to be, uh, really forced to confront what, what sort of costs are they willing to take on? What are they willing to tolerate? If the win for them is staying, what might they be willing to give up? And if there are certain things that they aren't willing to give up, we need to explore, uh, them not staying as an option. How much do people have to get to know themselves and really do some deep introspection in order to make this all work? You know, can you be dealing with a team uh, if every individual on the team doesn't have some uh, intelligence about how they really work? Yeah. I'm presuming most of the, most of the listeners are thinking. If you've got a room full of uh, blind people or people who are highly unself-aware, it's a recipe for disaster. And I'm right here to tell you that uh, I'm I'm with you. Uh, my experience has been when you encounter a situation where people are unwilling to acknowledge their role in something, uh, the good and the bad that they bring to a situation, then you're you have a recipe for people just bumping up against each other in really destructive ways. Um, the the challenges were rarely taught the skills to, to do that. And, um, you know, if you think about going back to your time in, in college or high school or wherever it is you did your uh, education, uh, you know, when was the last class uh, you took on self-knowing or on uh, working well with others? You know, for me, it's sort of like I go back to, well, maybe it was elementary school, which was, you know, playing well with Johnny in, on the playground or something like that. We've got very few examples where we're, where we're um, forced or our education system funnels us towards building these sorts of skills. So they need to be, uh, it usually takes an active effort on somebody's part to, to go out and, and, and pick up a book or work with a coach or have a great mentor who asks them provocative, open-ended questions to really dig into uh, who am I? What do, what do I value? Um, what are my habits? Uh, what are my strengths? And where do I tend to get in trouble? So it's interesting because you might get really good in your role as a great team member. And then what ends up happening is you get promoted into a leadership role. And all of a sudden, there are a really different set of skills that are required. Do you work with people who end up in roles that um, are very different and where now they have to actually have and develop a, a brand new skill set with regard to working with others. Yeah, absolutely. It's the reason I have a job, really, um, because you have these functionally brilliant people. They're initial product people. They're initial engineers. They uh, struck all the initial, you know, deals and and or, or marketing contracts for a company, and all of a sudden they're uh, managing a team of five people, or they're managing uh, a team of three people who are all managers of other people, and the the skill set really shifts drastically. Yeah. One of my uh, favorite lines um, is from a, a clip that I'm going to play you from Josh Reeves, who is a, also a former Mayfield fellow who runs a company called Gusto. And he talks about the importance of leaders firing themselves, essentially giving up responsibilities and not feeling like they need to own 
every aspect of the product or the project. So I'm going to play you this and, and get your thoughts on how you prepare people to do this. Um, another topic I get asked a lot about is, uh, you know, how does the role of CEO evolve or change? What does it mean to be a CEO? And this was a question I asked myself a lot when I was uh, at Intel as well, where the CEO of Intel literally had, you know, I think at that point they were 70,000 employees. And I wondered, how does a, how does a person leading a 70,000 person company know how to spend his or her time? Um, right? You could literally have like an hour free and, and call a head of state or call a journalist or hire someone or do all these different tasks. How does that not just overload your synapses? Um, and the answer is, you know, in some ways, it's, it's all about delegation. right? It's about firing yourself from as many jobs as you can. So how do you fire yourself? Well, uh, well, the funny thing is I know Josh, and back to our previous question of having the self-awareness uh, to be effective in teams, I know he brings uh, that in, in large numbers. Uh, and so I think what he's describing like, really requires a certain amount of self-awareness and, and self-confidence. Because what happens for most of us is that over time as we become a proficient in something and we get rewarded either within our team, within our company, within our culture for that thing, um, we identify with it. And so doing what he describes, very, it's you know, four sentences, easy to say, much harder to do for many of us because what it means is letting go of that thing that for the last six months or the last six years for some of us has been what we've derived our sense of value and worth from and stepping into a new unknown and sometimes stepping into things that I'm actually not quite as good at because I've, I've fired myself from the last thing that I've been working on uh, for the past five years, which can, can be really difficult. Um, you know, it's funny that the clip makes me think of uh, an email I got from a client of mine the other day. <laughs> and it's a, there's a medium post by Henry Ward. He's the CEO at eShares. And he wrote uh, a post called a manager's FAQ. And one of the, one of the questions he was, he's often asked is how do I decide as a manager what to delegate? And uh, his response was, delegate the work that you want to do. And there's, well, that's super interesting. there's something in that response that reminds me a bit of what Josh is, is going for here, which is um, whatever it is you find yourself wanting to do, the interesting work, the stuff that you're maybe really good at, over time as you grow, your company grows, you grow in your role, give that work to other people and let them go do that. And take on the, the kind of gritty, gnarly, uh, different challenges that you need to adapt to as the leader of the organization to shift into and let other people do the things that you've uh, grown accustomed to doing. Very interesting. Uh, I'm sure that's hard for a lot of people. I'm going to have to go do a little self-assessment myself. <laughs> Makes you think. So uh, I, I want to play the rest of this clip from Josh because he goes on to talk about the importance of interviewing people and how you essentially build your team. spend 50% you know, of my time interviewing people, right? That kind of might seem crazy to hear that, but um, that's the way it's been for two years now. And that's probably the way it'll be for the next five or 10 years. And so um, interviewing is a really important skill. If you guys have any questions, you can talk to me after. But uh, the ability to interview, I think, is something that everyone should build as a skill set. When I was at Zazzle as a first job out of school, I was a PM, but I also volunteered to run all of our Stanford College recruiting. Um, it's just like a muscle you have to iterate and get better at it through practice. And interviewing, again, you can always get better. So interviewing, how 
to get good at interviewing and what are the key characteristics of a good interview that allows you to really assess who that person is and whether they'll be a good fit for your team? I love this question. I wish Josh was here to give you the entire playbook because I know he's a, he's a great expert at this. Uh, I think what I often find myself talking to folks about when they're curious about how to get better at interviewing is first off, getting really clear uh, on what their objectives are. You know, is it that we're hiring for a uh, product lead on our mobile platform? Great. What else is important about that person? What sort of team are they walking into? Um, how are you going to assess uh, whether or not they fit with your values and with your culture? Um, can't, you know, that begs the question. Sometimes I'm sitting down with somebody for the first time, like, how would you describe your culture? And it gets to these more macro questions. It's not just, does somebody have the technical brilliance or the functional expertise to do, uh, what, what I need them to do, but, um, how are they going to fit into this constellation of people? So, um, what I often end up helping people do is really think about what are those compelling, uh, deep revealing open-ended questions that they could bring to an interview scenario um, that are gonna help them get a sense for how might this person actually show up day to day. Because as much as we'd, we'd love to have a trial period where we have three to six months with everybody and can sort of test drive them before we hire them, but as we know, that's usually not the case. Um, so it often comes to, I help people augment their interviewing skill set by asking or adding questions like, um, tell me about the last time you felt really invigorated by your work and then getting curious about that. What was it about that that really lit you up? Oh, it sounds like uh, being able to go off for a day and just brain dump was an important part of that. Um, what else? And ask questions that people can't just answer with a yes or a no, but they're forced to describe the contours and the, and the, the colors of what their experience has been. Also, to be really specific about the behavioral elements of it, I might ask something like, uh, or help people get to the point of asking something like, um, tell me about uh, the last time you really butt heads with a manager or felt really demotivated by something. What happened? What did that person do? Really interesting. I know that one of the challenges today is that people don't often work in the same space. We have a lot of distributed teams. So even though you might hire someone who might be great if they were sitting across the desk from you, but they might be sitting across the world from you, and there are really different skills that are needed if you're going to collaborate um, across long distances. I'm going to play you a clip from Jocelyn Goldfind, who is uh, was at Facebook, and she's talking about um, how uh, distributed teams fit into their culture and the challenges uh, that they result in. There is no software of significance ever that has been built by a single person acting alone. Um, you know, Facebook itself, like, you know, Mark enlisted his roommates within a week, right? Uh, and, and so you're, and this is one of the areas in which college will kind of mislead you, actually, because you're taking a lot of the ACS classes where it's actually cheating to get help from somebody else. And then in real life, what we expect you to do is get help from other people. Um, and it's really hard to collaborate with someone who, who you can't look in the eye to resolve a dispute or, a, or a, just a miscommunication. Um, and it is really, really hard to communicate with someone who is in a distant time zone from you where your overlapping hours of awakeness are not that many. So how do you do that? 
do you work with teams that are distributed around the world and help them solve issues that are really complicated by the fact that they're not in the same room? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Everything that she said really resonates with the experience I have working with distributed teams. You know, I've got clients who've got offices here in San Francisco, in London, in, you know, Germany, in France. Uh, I work with a company whose the majority of their team is distributed. Um, so this, you know, in, in the world we live in today, it's incredibly common to be dealing across time zones and across cultures. And I would say, uh, from the experience I've had, the point she raises are, are spot on, uh, you know, overlapping windows of awakeness and the challenges those percent present, uh, being unable to look somebody in the eye uh, when you have a dispute, a conflict, a debate, you know, there's a ton of compelling research around uh, what percentage of our communication is actually done non-verbally. Uh, and different studies say different things. Some are, you know, <laughs> Tina's making faces at me right now, everyone. <laughs> you know, it's, it's anywhere from, I don't know, 40 to let's say 60%. Different studies say different things. But a significant amount of it comes through our uh, through our nonverbals, through our posture, through our. So, what do you do with this? I mean, how do you help teams solve these problems when they don't have all the nonverbal cues? Yeah, it's a it's a it's really hard. It's really hard. I think one of the things that you just have to double down on if you're a team in that situation is uh, what are our communication processes. Uh, and you have to be more rigorous about them because you can't get away with, uh, hey, let me turn four desks over and ask you a quick question thing. Or, hey, let me run into you uh, in the cafeteria during uh, a break or during lunch to clarify this thing. You can't rely on that. So you just have to have uh, clearer expectations around the communication mechanisms. Okay, what is, we have a dis distributed team, what is our all hands or team stand-up going to look like? And can we do that in a format that works for everyone. Uh, uh, this is sort of a simple thing uh, to say, but it's surprising to me how many teams grapple with it, which is what's our technology set up to actually have clear, crisp, audible, non-laggy communication as we have three different offices or th people in three different locations, uh, you know, all videoing in to the same meeting. Yeah, I can imagine that people uh, in remote locations can often feel left out of a decision, right? I'm sitting having an informal conversation with the person who's in my office, and all of a sudden the person around the world realizes, hey, who made that decision? Oh, yeah, we were walking down the hall and we resolved that issue, yeah. right? And for people to feel left out. And Absolutely. And I mean, you're, you're highlighting right now when you have... Um, uneven distribution of people. So let's say, you know, 80% of your office is in person in San Francisco, but you do have satellite offices. Sounds sort of like what she was describing. Um, can I bring a, a mindfulness or an awareness to the effect these little uh, momentary interactions have on that person sitting halfway around the world? And can we have some system for keeping them in the loop or for getting their input? Uh, it's really, really important. What processes can people put in place to mitigate these situations? I think a lot of it boils down to really being intentional about the, the how. And what I mean by that is, particularly in startups, so much time and energy goes into the, the what. The, like, what are we doing today? What do we need to get done? What's important? What's top of the list? Maybe if we're lucky, we have the why and that vision behind it. But when it comes to successful teams, whether they're distributed, like the ones we were just talking about, or ones that all sit around the same office, is are we pausing every so often to ask ourselves, so how are we going about this, everyone? How are we doing ourselves? 
right? What, what sorts of ways are we communicating? How do we coordinate tasks? How do we listen to one another? How do we exchange feedback when things aren't going well? How do we exchange feedback when things are going really well? Right? One of the things um, when it comes to, to team and making teams work that can be tempting is to talk about where teams go bad and the problems and challenges that can arise. I think an equally important thing, and in fact, the research would show that it has disproportionate positive effects, is if you can really build a culture of appreciation, of recognition um, that, has, that will equip a team to survive the, the squalls and the hard times that inevitably come over the course of building something from nothing. So I guess my, my answer would be to focus on the how. Great. I love that. Is it usually the case that everyone in team knows when it's not working? Or is it a few people on the team who are going, oh my gosh, this is really broken. And some of the people on the team think it's working just fine. In a high functioning team, a team knows when things aren't going well. Um, but that's the ideal. Most often you have a, a distributed sense of how well things are going or not. And the pain is usually most acutely felt by a certain number of people around the table. Um, regardless of which of those categories your team falls into though, the question I often have for the people I work with is, how are you creating the conditions for whether it's just one person or a disproportionate number of people who are feeling negatively, how are you creating the conditions for that to actually have the light of day? for people to name that elephant in the room and be able to speak about it. Uh, because so often those things get swept under the rug or they're done in side conversations or in grumbles to our significant other when we go home from work. It sort of seems to me that every team should almost have a safe word when things aren't working. It's like, you know, purple elephant, purple elephant, or something yeah. that like, okay, let's take a break and see if we're doing things correctly. I have worked with teams who incorporate things like that. They'll have a totem or an action figure that they share around in a meeting and they'll assign the role of a facilitator. And that person's role is, is to keep people on topic, keep them on time, and to flag in a parking lot any sort of issue that seems like it's sort of present but not being addressed to be revisited next time. So absolutely, it's wacky. Some of these team things are like, why do we have to talk about that? But uh we need to make those implicit things, those things that are happening in our head, a little bit more explicit more often. Because for most of us, we are on the side of censoring them and letting them fester. So if people who are listening wanted to do something today or tomorrow to improve their effectiveness on the teams they're working on, is there one thing they could do that really would be meaningful? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll go back to that comment I had about actually recognizing the positive. Um, obviously, there's lots that could be done around how can we improve and get better. There are auxiliary skills around people managing their defensiveness. There, we can get into a sticky wicket when we go to how do we get better, how do we improve, and we start exchanging constructive feedback. So let me leave you with something a little simpler. And that is, imagine you have a team meeting next week and you wanna figure out how to improve um, as a team incrementally. If you're the leader or you're just somebody on that team, send out an email a few days before that poses the question, what's something that everybody on this team does that really works for you, that you'd not only love to see them continue, but uh, do even more of? Have people prepare their answer to that question and start your next meeting by setting aside 15 or 20 minutes to have everyone go around and share that thing for the other several people around the room. I noticed you tend to do this. It really has a positive impact on me and what I'm trying to accomplish. Please do more of it. Well, Michael, I noticed that you were incredibly responsive to all the questions I asked. Thank you very, very much for this really wonderful interview. You're welcome. I'm glad I was. 
Sajidali here. This podcast is brought to you by Stanford eCorner and the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford School of Engineering. Our Innovation Lab story producer is Deanna Badazadigan, and the technical producer and editor is Eli Shell. Our digital solutions manager is Sarah Khan, and our software developer is Davor Senkovic. Our designer is Daniel Stusi, and communications and marketing are led by Mike Pena and Monica Jort. You can find additional podcasts, videos, and articles at ecorner.stanford.edu, including our acclaimed Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at eCorner.